Hi and welcome to Infatuated, the podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily. And I'm Rebecca. And we are back with episode 12. Woohoo! <laughs> so, Emily, given that I live here now, yes. <laughs> and I've been here all week, I know how your week has been. Mm-hmm. So I thought instead I would ask you, what has been the highlight of your week this week? So... I have quite a sappy highlight of the week. Okay. And it's that I found myself last night thinking about like all the people that I've got around me at the moment Mm -hmm. and how I've got a really bunch of like supportive people, a lot of very nice people. Like I've had a good week of FaceTiming and Mm. playing Animal Crossing together and like getting to know someone new and like having people send me stuff that they think I'd like, like tag me and things and be like, this made me think of you and having you back in the flat as well and yeah just being like a typical Pisces and feeling all the love right now and I'm like I'm this close to starting my PhD which even though I'm excited about is like very scary Mm. and I just feel like I need to remind myself of this moment of being like oh I'm really happy with all the relationships that I've got going at the moment oh that's so nice because they're like what's going to help me through all the scary stuff you have so, a good support system yes so that's my very sappy highlight of the week that's really cute <laughs> i don't sit and reflect like that very often but i found myself last night being like oh people have been so nice to me recently do you know what i actually was having a similar like it wasn't the same thought process mm. last night but i feel like probably when you were sitting reflecting on that i was also sitting reflecting on like the scary things and like the yeah. people around me and I was try I was very consciously trying to be like but you have people yeah so it's fine yeah it must mean something in the air maybe what about you do you have a highlight of the week <laughs> mine mine feels really shallow now <laughs> that's okay <laughs> but no I did actually have a highlight that I wanted to tell you so the other night at work I'm alone in the office and I'm at the end of the office that's furthest away from our little kitchen area. Mm-hmm. So I have like a decent walk to get to the kettle. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it was like 10 o'clock at night. It was pitch black outside. And the lights in the office are on motion sensors. So only the one that's like right above me yeah. was on. This sounds like it's going to be really spooky. <laughs> yeah. But Is it's this not... our Halloween episode? <laughs> no, no, not yet. Anyway, I had my headphones on and I was like bopping away and then I like got up to make a cup of tea and I started strutting to the beat of the song because obviously I was by myself, mm-hmm. forgetting that as I walked all the lights would turn on and all the <laughs> lights started turning on like to the beat as I passed them and it was just awesome. That's so funny, you're in your own music video. Yeah, I honest to God felt like the coolest that I've ever felt in my life. <laughs> like, I feel like my life should always just be lit like that now. <laughs> Where, like, lights come on behind me as I walk. And also, mm-hmm. um, another little work highlight, which is just weird. Mm-hmm. Remember I spent... Remember? Remember I spent, like, three episodes talking about Taylor Swift? Yeah. And then she was on my front page. Mm-hmm. Well, last night, on my front page, there was wheelbarrows. <laughs> which I've also talked about in this podcast so I feel like what we're doing here is some sort of manifestation okay and I'm not mad about it what do we want to manifest what should we talk about a lot today I don't know what do we want to manifest I'd quite like to manifest I'd quite like to manifest just a bit of peace to be honest yeah let's let's (laughs) manifest a bit of peace (laughs) 
so Emily, what are you infatuated with this week? I am infatuated with Woven in Moonlight by Isabel Ibanez. That's such a pretty title. It is, and it's a very pretty book, which I'll talk about in a second, because I have a whole tangent on that. Nice. But yeah, this came out in January of this year, 2020, and although it's a standalone story, there is a companion novel, which is coming out January coming. Oh. And I gather that that one, which is called uh, Written in Starlight, another very pretty name, Yeah. takes place after this novel, but it follows like a side character from this one. Oh, that's cool. So they're connected, but you don't necessarily need to read them in order, mm-hmm. uh, which is just very cool. I quite like that idea. Yeah, that reminds me of like the Becky Chambers trilogy that I oh, read, yeah. A Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. It has like it's three books that follow completely different characters, but like the main character from each one will be like mentioned in yeah. the one before it. Yeah. It's pretty cool. That's cool. Anyway. But yeah, as I said, before I talk about this book, I want to talk about the design. So it's absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. It's so pretty. I'm just propping it up so Rebecca can see it. So it's got like this green, pink, and black colour palette with like silver foil for the title and like on all the wee stars in the sky. And she actually designed it herself. Ah. So I had a little stalk of Isabel's Instagram and she said that her publishers were keen to get a Bolivian artist to design the cover. Mm -hmm. And she was like, I'm a Bolivian artist. (laughs) So she got to do it. And I love that she's got like this extra part of herself in her novel. It's just so lovely. And all of the elements that are on the cover, including all the wee animals, mm-hmm. are actually in the novel. Oh, so, that's like, pleasing. you can really see the detail that, like, arguably another designer might not have put in. Mm. And I also love that you have this second figure yeah. lurking in the background here. And because of the colours used at first glance, like, he could be one of the flowers. Yeah. But he's a masked vigilante in this book, so it's a fun little detail that he's just, like, lurking in the background. That's so cool. I'm also really into this little subtitle of Seize the Night. Yeah, that's the setting. It's their, like, motto. Like, ah, Carpe Noctem. It's very I like cool. That. That's cool. So, yeah, I mentioned Bolivia, and that's because the novel is set here, or at least in, like, an imagined version. Mm called Incasisa and this is the point where I apologize if I pronounce anything wrong <laughs> again <laughs> so you're always doing this to yourself I know I need to read more like you know white male authors and yeah I know god no one reads them <laughs> so yeah in Incasisa there's been a revolution and the former royalty the Illustrians have been ousted and on the throne is Atok king of the Alaskans and the only illustrian royalty left is Catalina, the Condesa, which is like the princess, basically. Yeah. And she's determined to get her throne back. And she also wants control of the Estrella, which is this like powerful item. I think it's like a, a gemstone mm. that can summon ghosts, which Atok currently has. And she is given the opportunity to infiltrate the Castillo and get the Estrella when Atok announces he wants to have the Condesa as his wife. Right. However, the novel doesn't follow Catalina. It actually follows Jimena, who is the Condesa's decoy, who has been her decoy since they were eight years old. And it is Jimena who goes to the Castillo to marry Atok. That's so cool. (laughs) I know, it's such a good setup. I love um, I love anything that's to do with like doubles or yeah. like especially like, literally like body doubles. Yeah, oh, it's so cool. We love a doppelganger. Mm-hmm. 
So the novel follows Himina as she pretends to be the Condessa, she's always done, and as she tries to bring down Atok. However, this isn't just a simple like revenge story, she's a very stubborn character and this gets her into a lot of trouble and she also starts to doubt their plan as she starts to see the other side of the revolution and it becomes a much more like nuanced story. Amazing. There's also some romance in there. There is a vigilante I mentioned called El Lobo, which I love because that means the wolf. Oh, nice. And it's just a cool name. Yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> and I didn't find his reveal that surprising, to be honest. I, like, worked out pretty quickly who it is. But his character has this, like, bravado about him that, like, you don't care. It's still very fun to read. Mm. It didn't, like, ruin it for me that I worked out who he was. Right. And, yeah, that's about all I'm going to say about the story mm. because anything else is just a spoiler and I've actually only got three quotes today which is very unlike me but everything else I picked out just gave the plot away so I've I've really tried to exercise yes so there is one thing I didn't mention and that is the magic in this novel so obviously I mentioned the Estrella earlier which has the power to control ghosts Mm. but there are lots of other powers here so Luna who's the kind of like moon god Mm. blesses those with different powers and this little quote is between Catalina and Himina and Catalina has the power to read the constellations as like a oh. kind of divination and Himina can weave tapestries with threads made from moonlight. Ah, hence the title. Hence the title. Imagine yeah. being like, oh yeah, I can I can read the the constellations and then mm-hmm. your body double is like, I can weave the moonlight. I know. Well, that's basically what this quote is. <laughs> Catalina's gaze snags on one of my tapestries hanging in the hall. A scene depicting a shooting star escaping dense, puffy clouds. My favourite scene to weave. You've come really far with your weaving. Luna's given you an incredible talent. The way she says it makes me wonder if it's meant to be a compliment, but her tone sounds forlorn, as if my magic cheapens hers, which doesn't make any sense. She can read the stars, or as I merely copy them. Catalina holds the fate of Illustrians in her hands. I hold wool. Aww. I'm going to go more into, like, her weaving magic in a moment, but first I just wanted to talk about the quote and, like, all the, re- like, the relationship that it sets up. Obviously, Humina is a decoy, so she can never, like, truly be herself. Mm-hmm. And she's always comparing herself to Catalina, trying to do what Catalina would do, rather than, like, speaking up when she thinks something's wrong. And I love that this quote of her comparing their talents ends with that line, like, I hold will. Yeah. Because it totally bypasses the fact that she can literally do magic. Yeah. But she's so used to comparing herself to Catalina and you've got that line about, like, them cheapening themselves. Mm -hmm. And, like, I don't know, I just... I love that, like, she thinks Catalina must be better because she's the real Condessa. So she doesn't see the beautiful power and talent that she has in herself yeah, and I don't I think that her power is objectively much cooler yeah I but... think it, I think it's cooler <laughs> <laughs> and yeah this isn't like a spoiler to say but like as the book progresses she does embrace being herself she also has that separation because she's in mm. the Castillo and Catalina is still you know Elsewhere. not <laughs> so like she gets to be herself even though she's pretending to be someone else and you see her confidence in her weaving reflect that as well, which I just think is a very cool detail. Yeah, it's a nice metaphor. Yeah, definitely. You love a weaving 
image I these days. I know. It's very on theme. Mm. <laughs> so I have another quote about her weaving, and this is from right at the start of the book. And it's literally just like the first description we get of her weaving with the moonlight. Okay. So I wanted to share it. My fingers twitch. I want to weave. No, I need to. With my heart thudding, I grab a bundle of the snow white wool and tie knots on the top and bottom pegs. Once the loom is properly warped, I gather more wool. I start at the top, threading the strands over and under to create diamond-shaped lights peppering the evening sky. As I work, moonlight glints around me, growing brighter as if peering over my shoulder to watch me work. My fingers blur as I move from left to right and back again. When I finish dotting the tapestry with twinkly lights, it's ready for my magic thread. The one only I can make. The one made of moonlight. My fingers tingle and I reach for a ray of silver light. Feel it glide over my hand like putting an arm through a sleeve. The moonlight slants, turning supple and smooth, bending and twisting as it lengthens. My breath catches. No matter how many times I use Luna's rays to make thread, it always manages to surprise me. The shimmer of magic courses through me, delighting the fabric of my soul. I work the incandescent threads over and under again, building a scene of the night sky. The moonlight turns to moon dust as I weave, fluttering to the stone floor like falling snowflakes. In what feels like minutes, a new tapestry winks back at me. A glittering silver work of art that lights up the small room. Pools of moon dust gather at my feet, as if I've wandered into winter. My neck and shoulders stiffen, a telltale sign that I've once again lost track of time. The pain is worth it. While I weave, life's troubles melt away. That's so pretty. It is so pretty. It's a hard thing to do when you're writing in first person to also make it that lyrical. Mm-hmm. Like the like my fingers blur, blah 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 blah. Yeah. That can be clunky. Oh if yeah, you definitely. Don't do it yeah. Well, but I think she's done it really well. Yeah, I think so. It's just so imaginative as well. Mm. Like where did you come up with that? It's insane. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I've purposely not included quotes about this, but you do learn the extent of what she can do with the threads made of moonlight, like as the book goes, her mm. power kind of like grows as you go. And yeah, we've obviously talked a lot about weaving and threads the past few weeks. So here's another take. Something a bit different. I think it's really nice. <laughs> yeah, it's really, really pretty. Um, and Isabel also leans into that idea of like weaving being a kind of storytelling and in turn like storytelling being a kind of magic. But that's also a spoiler. So I'm going to have to leave it at that. <laughs> but yeah, I don't have a lot to say about this quote other than I just think it's really lovely and I love the line, the fabric of my soul. Yeah. I think that's lovely. But I really liked when she something like the slanted light oh no, the like putting your arm through the sleeve like of a Like a sleeve, yeah. That. You can like feel it. Yeah, you can feel yeah. it and like the idea of it like slanting and turning supple mm-hmm. in her hand. Oh. I know. I love like, what's that called? Tactile description. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And yeah, I was just going to add like my one complaint about this book, although it's not like really a complaint, is that I think the magic could have been expanded more. Like right. it's just kind of presented and like not explained, which I know is a technique in itself. Mm-hmm. But I just do wish we'd had a little bit more emphasis on it. Got to see like more examples of people with like Luna's powers because mm. you do only see a few. 
But that's me just nitpicking because I really loved those scenes. Yeah. So I just wish I had more of them. Maybe in the next one. Maybe. However, one thing Isabel has not held back on describing is the food. Oh. Oh my god. The food. I was so hungry <laughs> while reading this book, genuinely. There's actually a glossary at the back of this novel purely for the food she mentions. That's so dope. Yeah. And Himina is known for having a big appetite, so there's lots to mention. <laughs> So I thought I'd just read one of my favourite food scenes. This is between Himina and Rumi, who is one of the Laskins that she like spends a lot of time with at the Castillo. He returns carrying a bag full of almond-shaped pastries filled with diced meat and potatoes, peas, raisins and a single black olive baked in a savoury soup. We sit at one of the available tables and Rumi hands me a sultania, a spoon and a clay plate. I drop the pastry onto the plate and I'm just about to pierce the dough when Rumi makes a loud sound of disgust at the back of his throat. What are you doing? he asks, sounding like I'm about to murder a baby alpaca. I stare at him blankly. Rumi makes more disgusted noises as he drags my plate away. Condessa, let me teach you how to eat a sultania correctly. He picks one up, holds the pointed ends with his middle finger and thumb and gently shakes it. After you shake it, take a small bite at one of the ends, then pour the soup onto your spoon first so it doesn't spill all over your plate. It takes several spoonfuls before Rumi eats all of the Hugo. Meanwhile, my stomach continues to rumble. I eye my food longingly. You're eating it wrong if you get even a drop of juice on your plate, he says in a serious tone. He bites into the pastry and proceeds to scoop the filling into his mouth. He eats the whole thing without spilling any of it. Isn't he talented? I grab the plate with my sultania, my stomach still rumbling loudly. I try to eat the sultania the way he taught me, but some of the soup ends up on my plate. Rumi smirks at me. You know what they say about people who spill the juice, right? I eye him warily. What? That they're terrible kissers. For some unfathomable reason, my cheeks warm. I gaze at him and grab another sultania. This time I don't spill a drop. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so first of all, I want to eat that. It yeah, sounds good. <laughs> it does sound good. But also, I love that Isabel has brought like this part of her culture into the story. Mm. So like, I'm sure there were loads of Latin American readers who like could relate to that and we're like oh that's a conversation I've had but as well like for people like me who like are not part of that culture at all it's just entertaining and a fun look at something that I wouldn't know otherwise definitely food brings us all together yep you know 100% and you can see that like in the text as well because they're technically meant to be enemies but they're Mm. sad about eating food together and bantering and flirting and like I just love that she's focused on the food so much it just makes it feel like a like proper like a real story yeah exactly because it is it's the it's those little moments that do build relationships yeah definitely like a shared particular item of food Mm -hmm. or something yeah yeah definitely so that is me this week very very short for me but it's yeah it's a really fun read it's quite a quick one I think I read in like two or three days actually it's quite speedy to get through yeah it seems like it's quite energetic yeah definitely and yeah, I'm keen to read the companion piece when it comes out. I'm very intrigued. So yeah, that is Woven in Moonlight. Well, thank you very much. I don't 
think I would have picked that book up, to be honest, if I'd seen it. I don't mm. know why, because it's really pretty, but I just yeah. would I feel like I would have skimmed over it. Yeah. But now I'm really interested to read it. I think this was another, like, Goodreads recommendation. Mm. I think it just popped up and it was like, you might like this. I was like, it does sound good. Nice. Because it is, uh, I don't actually think I mentioned this, but it is, like, partly based on, like, Bolivian history and Bolivian politics. That's cool. Yeah. I know nothing um, about Bolivia. No, I don't really either, but, like, you, you get to you get to know a bit. I gather, like, from what I've read around this book, Atok, like, the king, he ends up using a lot of their land to sell, like, drugs, like a really addictive mm. drug, and I kind of gather that's based on real life. Yeah. So, yeah, it's very, very interesting. Not, like... I don't want to say not my usual type. I suppose it's not my usual setting. It's not one I'm, like, used yeah. to reading, but really loved it it's very good awesome thank you for sharing thank you so what is your infatuation this week my infatuation this week first of all my infatuation kind of ties into my writing life as much as it does my reading life Mm -hmm. so i'm gonna do a slightly longer discussion on this and like skip my writing section okay okay Um, I don't know why I'm asking you, because that's what I've prepared. (laughs) So my infatuation is an essay that I read last month. I keep thinking about it. It's from 2014 by VQR editor Leslie Jameson, and it's called The Grand Unified Theory of Female Pain. Okay. So it's a a good, light (laughs) title. So just a bit about Jameson to start, because I hadn't heard of her before I came across this essay, but she is a novelist, first and foremost. She wrote The Gin Closet and The Empathy Exams, both oh, of which heard I have of, heard of. Yeah, I've heard of those. But she's also a really respected essayist, and she directs the non-fiction programme at Columbia in the US. Oh. So, like, she's pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. And the reason that I'm infatuated with this essay of hers is that it is both a really intelligent discussion of writing, among, like, other things, but it's also a living example of a great piece of writing in itself, and I find those things Mm -hmm. satisfying. So let me just dive in and read you... It's quite a long introduction, but I'm going to read you the whole introductory section Mm -hmm. because I think it lays out the essay's concerns really well. I do want to say before I start, for any listeners, this is an essay on female pain, as the title suggests, and the essay itself does mention sexual assault, self-harm, eating disorders, reproductive trauma, etc, etc. And my discussion might touch on that, so if you're not in a headspace for it, just skip my section. So this is the start of the grand unified theory of female pain. We see these wounded women everywhere. Miss Havisham wears her wedding dress until it burns. The bride within the bridal dress had withered like the dress. Belinda's hair gets cut, the sacred hair disaver from the fair head. Forever and forever. And then ascends to heaven, thy ravished hair, which adds new glory to the shining sphere. Anna Karenina's spurned love hurts so much she jumps in front of a train. Freedom from one man was just another one, and then he didn't even stick around. Mimi is dying in La Bohème, and Rodolfo calls her beautiful as the dawn. You've mistaken the image, she tells him. You should have said, beautiful as the sunset. Women have all gone pale over Dracula. Mina is drained of her blood, then made complicit in the feast. His right hand gripped her by the back of the neck, forcing her face down on his bosom, a child forcing a kitten's nose into a saucer of milk. Maria in the mountains confesses her rape to an American soldier. 
Things were done to me, I fought until I could not see, then submits herself to his protection. No one touched thee, little rabbit, he says. His touch purges every touch that came before it. She is another kitten under male hands. How does it go again? Freedom from one man is just another one? Maria gets her hair cut too. Sylvia Plath's agony delivers her to a private holocaust, an engine, an engine, chuffing me off like a Jew, and her father's ghost plays train conductor. Every woman adores a fascist, the boot in the face, the brute, brute heart of a brute like you. Every woman adores a fascist, or else a guerrilla killer of fascists, or else a boot in the face from anyone. Blanche Dubois wears a dirty ball gown and depends on the kindness of strangers. The bride within the bridal dress is withered like the dress. Men have raped her and gone gay on her and died on her. One of her final stage directions turns her luminescent. She has a tragic radiance in her red satin robe, following the sculptural lines of her body. Her tragedy is radiant. It makes her body something sculpted. The pain of women turns them into kittens and rabbits and sunsets and sordid red satin goddesses, pales them and bloodies them and starves them, delivers them to death camps and sends locks of their hair to the stars. Men put them on trains and under them. Violence turns them celestial. Age turns them old. We can't look away. We can't stop imagining new ways for them to hurt. Oh my god. So many characters I love as well. <laughs> I know, that's I was exactly the same. So already, like I know that's a hefty introduction, but I think it's worth it because you can see from the sort of patchworking technique of literary influences that this is someone who's not just interested in like female pain as a concept, but like specifically the writing of it and the depiction of it. And I think that that end line, we can't look away, we can't stop imagining new ways for them to hurt, really like lays out the problem or like the dilemma that she's approaching in this essay, mm. which is like to write female pain is to honour it, but it's also to like propagate it. Mm-hmm. And how do we as writers negotiate that? I mean, this is basically like my PhD thesis. Is it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah, I'm talking about like it's the female gothic and it's like why are we so interested in why like scaring women yeah basically <laughs> well like i i didn't know that that was your specific angle so that's really <laughs> interesting because although i don't come at it from the gothic genre yeah i'm also like really fascinated by work that tries to tackle that mm-hmm. like a lot of olivia gatwood's work who i read all the time discusses like the specific fears that come with being a girl but then in her latest collection life of the party she has one line that says i don't know why i'm doing this playing show and tell with the times i've walked fast in the dark Mm. which i think i've mentioned before Mm because i love that line and there's another poet that i really like called blythe baird and she has a collection called if my body could speak which is mainly about sexual assault and eating disorders but she has a really self-conscious, self-reflexive stanza that goes, Last night I painted my nails when I was hungry. I can't eat until the polish is dry. I don't want to go into more detail because what if you mistake this poem for an instruction manual? I don't know how to talk about the rabbit hole without accidentally inviting you to follow me down it. Mm. So the fact that I had them written down there, but I have these lines like memorised, and that doesn't really shock me because this is something like, as a writer... And like particularly because I like to do confessional stuff, I come up against this like all the time. 
is like how do you write about a bad experience or a bad emotion without recreating it Mm -hmm. and Jameson explores that in this essay in many many ways but I thought I'd share this one because it looks at one of your big time favourite writers Stephen King (gasps) and Carrie Oh, interesting. So here she's talking about, she's obviously talking like about menstruation in this section and she's talking about the famous scene where Carrie's covered in the pig's blood. And she writes, Carrie responds to the shame of fertility by weaponizing it. She doesn't get rid of the bleeding. She gets baptized by it. She doesn't wound herself. She wounds everyone else. At the heart of Carrie is a glorious inversion. What if you could take how hard it is to be a girl, the cattiness of frenemies, the betrayals of your own body, the terror of a public gaze, and turn all that hardship into a superpower. Carrie's telekinesis reaches the apex of its power at the moment she is drenched in red, the moment she becomes a living wound, as if she's just gotten her period all over herself, in front of everyone, as if she's saying, now I know how to handle the blood. Mm. Yeah, that's so good, especially... Have you read Carrie? I've not read it, but I've seen, like, the film. Yeah, especially because the first scene in the book is when she gets her period in the shower, shower. and they're all making fun of her for it. Yeah, she, then... has a, she has a whole bit on the plug it up yeah. chant. Yeah, yeah. Oh, um, that's so good. It's so... Like, it's just such, like, well-written analysis. Mm-hmm. And that's something I did want to say about this essay, is, like, it's a really compelling, fun-to-read essay, even though the, the subject isn't fun. Yeah. And it does a lot of justice to like a form that I think is often written off as dry or boring, because I don't think that there's anything dry or boring about this yeah. prose, to be yeah. honest. Anyway, I think that this wee discussion of Carrie is a great example of one kind of solution to the problem of writing female pain, because like you weaponize the wound, right? Mm-hmm. You make it like something active and narrative driving, and we see that a lot. But then I was thinking about it, and I think there's another problem that comes from that, which is like. Now the onus is on your wounded female character or narrator to be strong. Yeah. And Jameson does take account of that nuance in this paragraph. I think she's discussing the show Girls, but I really like the terminology that she uses here. I haven't seen Girls, but it doesn't really matter. No, I've not either. She says, These girls aren't wounded so much as post-wounded, and I see their sisters everywhere. They're over it. I am not a melodramatic person. God help the woman who is. What I'll call post-wounded isn't a shift in deep feeling. We understand these women still hurt, but a shift away from wounded effect. These women are aware that woundedness is overdone and overrated. They are wary of melodrama, so they stay numb or clever instead. Post-wounded women make jokes about being wounded or get impatient with women who hurt too much. The post-wounded woman conducts herself as if preempting certain accusations. Don't cry too loud. Don't play victim. Don't ask for pain meds you don't need. Don't give those doctors another reason to doubt. Post-wounded women fuck men who don't love them and then feel mildly sad about it or just blasé about it. They refuse to hurt about it or to admit they hurt about it. Or else they are endlessly self-aware about it if they do allow themselves this hurting. Mm. Fleabag, anyone? (laughs) Yeah. I actually feel extremely called out by that paragraph. I was just like, wow, call out my sarcasm as a defence mechanism. (laughs) Thanks, thanks, Leslie. But do you know what that actually got me thinking about? Which is 
unrelated to this essay. Uh-huh. But remember a couple months ago when everyone was cancelling Lana Del Rey? Mm, um, mm-hmm. And she was trying to defend herself in that like infamous Instagram post. Yes. What she said was, I'm fed up with female writers and alt singers saying that I glamorise abuse, when in reality I'm just a glamorous person singing about the realities of what we are all now seeing are very prevalent, emotionally abusive relationships. Yeah. And then she went on to say, There has to be a place in feminism for women who look and act like me. The kind of women who get their own stories and voices taken away from them by stronger women or men who hate women. Mm-hmm. So, like, there's a lot to unpack there in Lana Del Rey's statement, and I'm not going to get into that <laughs> because it's a mess. But I think, like, as clumsily worded and, like, tantrumy as the statement was, I think Jameson has articulated with her, like, post-wounded woman what Lana was getting at. Yeah. Like, the idea that you can either be wounded or post-wounded, and Lana's refusing to align with, like, post-woundedness. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. Like, I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt and say that that was what she was getting at. Because... I, th- I think so. <laughs> <laughs> because I th- she yeah. has this whole rhetoric about, like, I'm going to stay soft and I refuse to be hardened. Mm-hmm. Which, like, okay. Anyway, I'm not going to talk anymore about Lana Del Rey's politics and personal <laughs> statements because they're a mess. But I think that, like, the refusal to hurt is almost too easy, personally and artistically. Because pain is difficult to negotiate as a writer, but I am kind of on Lana's like remain soft vibe. Mm. Even though I think that a lot of what she says is like bananas. Mm. But yeah, Jameson puts this very well too and brings it overtly into the field of literary study with this little section, which I love. (laughs) I find myself in a bind. I'm tired of female pain and also tired of people who are tired of it. I know the hurting woman is a cliché, but I also know lots of women still hurt. I don't like the proposition that female wounds have gotten old. I feel wounded by it. I felt particularly wounded by the brilliant and powerful female poet who visibly flinched during a workshop at Harvard when I started reciting Sylvia Plath. She asked each of us to memorise a poem and I'd chosen Ariel, which felt like its own thirteenth line, black sweet blood mouthfuls fierce and surprising and hurting and free. Please, this brilliant and powerful woman said, as if herself in pain, I'm just so tired of Sylvia Plath. I had this terrible feeling that every woman who knew anything about anything was tired of Sylvia Plath, tired of her blood and bees and the level of narcissistic self-pity required to compare her father to Hitler, but I'd been left behind. I hadn't gotten the highbrow girl memo, don't read the girls who cried pain. And I just love that section. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because A, anyone who stands up for Plath is a goodie. Mm-hmm. And B, I think we both probably know very well the feeling of being seen as cliche in a university setting. <laughs> 100%. For liking <laughs> classics yeah. to start with. And that's a dangerous road to go down with a subject like this because the way I see it, if writing about female pain becomes cliche then, like, female pain becomes cliche. Mm. And that's a problem for people who write from life. Yeah. And I think both of us at some stage have handed in pieces of writing to our creative writing tutors Mm. about breakups. Yes. And we've both talked about before this feeling of, like, feeling silly. Yeah. Yeah. For doing that. And, like, like it was overdone or, like, you're being narcissistic. Mm -hmm. And I just... I think that she articulates this so well because she writes about the same class 
I was afraid to write a story about us because heartbreak seemed like a story that had been told too many times and my version of heartbreak felt horribly banal. Getting blackout drunk and sharing my feelings and fleeting pockets of lucidity, sleeping with guys and crying in their bathrooms afterwards, falling on 6th Avenue in the middle of the night and then showing my scarred knee to anyone who'd look. This kind of thing, I told myself, wasn't what I'd come to the Iowa Writers' Workshop to write about. Maybe sadness could be interesting, but not when it looked like this. The female narrator I'd be depicting in my story, a woman consumed by self-pity, drowning her sorrows in drink, engaged in reckless sexual self-destruction, obsessed with the man who'd left her, didn't seem like a particularly appealing or empowered sort of woman to think about or be. And yet she was me. Maybe drunken heartbreak was the lamest thing I could possibly write about, but this was precisely why I wanted to write about it. I wanted to write against my own feelings of shame at my premise, its banality and waft of self-pity, the way in which its very structure suggested a protagonist defined almost exclusively in terms of her harmful relationships to men. The story wouldn't just seem to be about letting men usurp a woman's identity, it would in fact be about this. My own squeamishness goaded me forward. Perhaps self-destruction in the aftermath of heartbreak was a trite pain, but it was my trite pain, and I wanted to find a language for it. And I love this part. (laughs) There were also practical concerns. I had a deadline for the workshop. Seeing as the breakup was all I thought about, I didn't see how I could write about anything else. I I just love that whole section. Yeah. Especially that last line, because it is just so practical. Yeah, no, yeah. So much of writing as a discipline is romanticised as something that you can, like, hone and achieve Mm -hmm. but here we have someone who is like pretty successful pretty respected in our field and she's just going well this is all i can think about because i'm a human yeah so i had to write about that because i had to write and i couldn't write about anything else yeah oh i love this i feel like i need to read this whole yeah you seriously and i don't know man like maybe some people feel like steady and valid enough in themselves to just write what they like and not Mm -hmm. give a fuck but see when i read that i felt so like relieved and like validated because it's like she's going, you don't need to overcome your life in order to write. Mm-hmm. You just make your writing out of whatever you've got going. Yeah. And it was just a really big comfort to me to read that. I feel like it's shifted my perspective a bit. Yeah. And like the little voice in my head that says like, this is too trivial a thing to write about. Yeah. I'm just like, no. This is the kind of thing I wish we got in like, like first year or yeah. second year and just, I don't know. Do you know what's so funny is that it was one of our creative writing tutors that sent me this. Really? Yeah. Mm. 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 The ironies. The ironies. (laughs) But yeah, so just to give you the end of that little story, Mm because I think it's a fun story, she really brings the, like, capital W writing and life together in her end to that section, because she says, I wouldn't say writing that story helped me to get over my breakup any faster. It probably did the opposite. I ended up consigning that ex into the realm of legend a sort of mythic prop around which I'd constructed this suffering version of myself. But the story helped me weave the breakup into my sense of self in a way that ultimately felt outward, directed toward the lives and pain of others. And yet, in the end, it all comes back home. Do I still wonder if my ex ever read that story? Of course I do. (laughs) I just think that's absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Like, it's so honest... And I think she takes, like, this really highbrow, like, literary piece of writing, like, right into the heart of someone that's, mm-hmm. like, real. Yeah. And how it hasn't actually resolved anything 
from the beginning, like, we still have this dilemma of the depiction of female pain and how it, like, catharts and it cuts deeper and how it, like, recreates the wound while healing the wound. Mm -hmm. But there is a sense, like, as she gets further into the essay, that these things can and should coexist. Mm -hmm. And in her conclusion, which I'll just read because it's good, she says, (laughs) I want to insist that female pain is still news. It's always news. We've never already heard it. Sure, some news is bigger news than other news. War is bigger news than a girl having mixed feelings about the way some guy slept with her and didn't call. But I don't believe in a finite economy of empathy. I happen to think that paying attention yields as much as it taxes. You learn to start seeing. And then... The wounded woman gets called a stereotype, and sometimes she is. But sometimes she's just true. I think the possibility of fetishising pain is no reason to stop representing it. Pain that gets performed is still pain. Pain turned trite is still pain. I think the charges of cliché in performance offer our closed hearts too many alibis, and I want our hearts to be open. I just wrote that. I want our hearts to be open. I mean it. Oh, I just fucking vibe with that, man. Like, yeah. I want our hearts to be open, too. <laughs> And, like, she's just done such a good job of convincing me. Yeah. On the note of which I want to say, this is a much broader and longer essay than the sections I've picked out. The whole thing took me maybe, like, an hour and a bit to read. Mm -hmm. But it is free online, so we can link it in the show notes. I was just going to ask that if we could Um, link it. And I've picked out the sections that specifically related to the writing of pain because that's what felt most relevant to me. Mm -hmm. But there are really beautiful and, like, difficult sections on like bodily pain, mental illness, eating disorders, abortion, like all sorts of things and they're all brilliantly written like that. Mm -hmm. And I just think every sentence that she writes feels like it says something true and something different to the sentence before it. Yeah. So I just wanted to also like, I don't have an overarching point for these but I wanted to read out a couple of my other favourite quotes to finish that didn't really fit into my discussion. Okay. I hope that they will convince people to go and check it out because it's good. <laughs> so this I just really liked because it was from a section where she's discussing the way that music can help us like rehearse a pain before we feel it. Okay. You know, it's not something that I've ever <laughs> it's not something I've ever written about. <laughs> she writes The habit of imagining ways I might someday hurt, of taking some pleasure in this imagining, started early for me. I grew up under the spell of damaged sirens. Tori Amos and Annie DeFranco, Bjork, Kate Bush, Mazzy Starr. They sang about all the ways a woman could be in pain. I'm a fountain of blood in the shape of a girl. And when they're out for blood, I always give. We are made to bleed and scab and heal and bleed again and turn every scar into a joke. Boy, you best pray that I bleed real soon. Bluffing your way into my mouth, behind my teeth, reaching for my scars. Did I ever tell you how I stopped eating when you stopped calling me? You're only popular with anorexia. Sometimes you're nothing but meat, girl. I've come home. I'm so cold. I called my favourites by their first names, Tori and Annie. Tori sang blood roses over and over again, and I had no idea what this phrase meant except that pain and beauty were somehow connected. Kate Bush's Experiment 4 describes a secret military plan to design a sound that could kill someone. Of course, the song played just like the song it described. Listening felt bad and so good. It felt like falling in love. I'd never fallen in love. I was a voyeur and a vandal, flexing the heart muscles in my heart by imagining myself into aches I'd never felt. 
Oh, I love that idea of listening to a song and knowing what it's like to be in love, but you've never actually been in it. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, that was me when I was like 13. Yeah. <laughs> I know. And it just like that, like flexing my heart, the heart muscles in my heart. Yeah. Like the idea that like the song, it's like, you know how much something is going to hurt. Yeah. Before it even happens to you. Yeah. And then like, there's all these songs about like first love that you listen to when you're like 14. And then you fall in love and you're like, oh, fuck, here we go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because you've been warned. And I have one last paragraph that I want to read because I think it is a fucking astounding piece of, like, word exploration on the different terms that we use in relation to pain. It just shows how good a writer she is. Okay. Different kinds of pain summon different terms of art. Hurt, suffering, ache, trauma, angst, wounds, damage. Pain is general and holds the others under its wings. Hurt connotes something mild and often emotional. Angst is the most diffuse and the most conducive to dismissal as something nebulous, sourceless, self-indulgent and affected. Suffering is epic and serious. Trauma implies a specific devastating event and often links to damage, its residue. While wounds open to the surface, damage happens to the infrastructure, often invisibly irreversibly, and damage also carries the implication of lowered value. Wound implies on media res. The cause of injury is in the past, but the healing isn't done. We are seeing the situation in the present tense of its immediate aftermath. Wounds suggest sex and aperture. A wound marks the threshold between interior and exterior. It marks where a body has been penetrated. Wounds suggest that the skin has been opened that privacy is violated in the making of the wound, a rift in the skin, and by the act of peering into it. Whoa. That reminds me of... There's a song in Spring Awakening. Mm-hmm. So Spring Awakening is about, like, sex and abortion and death and suicide and, like, all these very dramatic things. Right. So the song's called The Word of Your Body. Mm-hmm. The chorus is, Oh, I'm going to be wounded. I'm going to be your wound. I'm going to bruise you, you're going to be my bruise. But it's like, I don't know, that just reminded me of it there. Like, because it's sung right before the two characters have sex for the first time. Oh. And like, that's what they sing. That's very loaded, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that was a tangent. But yeah, that really reminded me of that there. I just think that she's got it spot on for every word. Mm. Like, yeah. when she says, like, suffering is epic and serious. I like the one about angst. Yeah. <laughs> like, the most sourceless, self-indulgent and affected. Yeah. I don't know, I just think, like, that's how deliberate and detailed a writer that she is. And so it's nice that there's someone like that that's so considerate, that's taken on, like, these big quite traumatic subjects yeah yeah i'm just glad glad that leslie jameson is out there doing her thing i also think like any writer could read that section specifically and just be like that is how much thought i put into what word i choose yeah like yeah it's just like an appreciation for word choice isn't it yeah but i wanted to ask you like we've kind of said it already but like do you feel that kind of like shyness or self-indulgent if you're writing about pain or like have you do you feel like you've kind of got over that now no I do I don't I don't think it's as much of a thought now Mm -hmm. but like we mentioned it earlier like I my fourth year folio was on like heartbreak or like well it was on it was on lots of things it was on like first love it was on like 
the heartbreak it was on like grief mm. like it was all kind of a big mix but like that was because I'd just been broken up with so like that was on my mind and that's mm. what I wrote about because like as you said earlier it was a very practical decision yeah I was like can't think about anything yeah else. I was like I can't think about anything else so I have to write something this is what it's going to be but it felt like the more it felt like the most honest and most like me writing mm-hmm. that I had done in the like three years of creative writing so you have that weird like seesaw of well I thought this was really good but I do feel kind of silly like yeah you know like I'm such a cliche like yeah I think that but, like that's what you feel like because you feel yeah. like I am such a cliche I'm sitting like writing about yeah my heartbreak and I'm a writing student yeah and, like, I feel like we're all doing this but but now it's like I mean I'm not really writing about like heartbreak in my novel but I'm writing about love and I'm just part of me just has already like a bit of a published writer brain on where I'm like this is what people like reading about so why am I putting so much pressure on myself people like reading about love stories so like just go with it yeah I've definitely had that argument with myself where it's like I'll write about something that I've read a lot about and then go there's too much out there about this like I shouldn't be writing it and then I go but I've read loads about this, and the fact that I read one thing about this didn't make me not want to read the other thing. Yeah, exactly. I think in creative writing, like you're, they keep trying to teach you to have an original idea, and it's like there are no original ideas. So, yeah. but yeah, I wish I wish we'd had that essay because I think I would have felt more like, I don't know, confident. Is that the right word? Just yeah. like more sure of what I was writing. And also, like, I wish we'd had that essay because you do read quite a lot of non-fiction in your university career. And I feel like because, obviously, it's a personal essay as well as an academic essay. Yeah. But I feel like it's so approachable. Yeah. And I feel like it makes that form and, like, all these big ideas feel really accessible. Yeah, definitely. And I wish that that kind of thing was used more to introduce people to, like, that type of writing yeah because she's talking about very complex stuff but it doesn't like from what you read out it doesn't seem it's not hard yeah it's not hard to understand no basically they're, yeah. hi- they're high level concepts but the language isn't hard to understand yeah and she makes it very inviting rather than like a lot of like non-fiction is quite gatekeeping mm. it's like oh i found this bit of knowledge but i'm gonna make it so individualized to the way that I'd express it that you're not going to be able to understand it yeah yeah but anyway oh that was so good though I loved that so that was a pure monologue but (laughs) I'm not doing the writing section what would you like to say about your writing this week so last week you talked about the world's wife Mm -hmm. by Caroline Duffy and you read out your own piece that was Mm -hmm. like inspired by her poems and I was thinking about it and I realized I also have a piece inspired by the world's wife really which I forgot about but it was in my third year creative writing folio so I had a little look back (laughs) and I thought I'd read it out today so yeah this was in my third year folio and I like looked through the accompanying essay that went with it and basically I explained that I settled on Mrs Midas, because that's one of my favourites, mm. and I took the story of Midas turning objects to gold by his touch, and I changed it to him turning items to ice. Oh. And I think this was from a class that we did on parody. Right. So I think I was like, oh, I'll parody a parody. Yeah. And, like, 
did ice instead of gold because that's so original <laughs> but anyway yeah i also say in that little essay i looked closely at the structure and word choice that duffy uses so i was able to emulate the same tone i kept a few phrases intact such as the final line which is i miss most even now his hands his warm hands on my skin his touch mm. and i say in duffy's poem i think she's drawing the connection between gold as a warm color and his mm. warm hands but here I wanted to keep that line and change the meaning. So in my poem, Mrs. Midas misses her husband's warm hands because they're now used to create ice. Ah, very clever. Thanks. So <laughs> I, I think in retrospect, before I read this out, I think I kept too much of her own words in it. Right. Like, I don't think I changed enough. But I did write this like three years ago, so we're just going to put that down to like inexperience go for it man so yeah it's kind of it's kind of a long one it's i'm pretty sure it's the same length as hers uh, but i shall just go so this is mrs midas it was late july i just poured a glass of lemonade begun to unwind as i picked up my book the patio was warm under my feet the heat radiating blurring the horizon so i stepped under the parasol and with my hand shielding my eyes i looked the length of the garden he was standing next to the paddling pool holding the bucket. Now the sun was bright and the visibility poor, the orb in the sky overpowering the eyes of the blinding white, but that plastic bucket had changed. And then he touched the contents inside, we had wanted to cool down, and it dropped from his arms like a boulder. Smashed. I thought to myself, where did he find that much ice? He came into the house. Summer grew cold. He drew the blinds. You know the mind. I thought of waterfalls turned to glass and of glaciers indoors. He sat in that chair like the white witch's faithful husband. The look in his face was odd, wild, proud. I said, what in the name of God is going on? He started to laugh. I served up the meal. He picked up the bunch of grapes. Within seconds, they were falling from his hand like marbles. He toyed with the spheres, then stalks, then with the knives, the forks. He asked for lemonade. I poured with a shaking hand, the sweetened ice chilled drink I had pressed, then watched as he picked up the cup, glass, crystal chalice, and drank. It was then that I started to scream. Frozen was his drink. After we'd both calmed down, I switched over to wine, heard him out, offered him none. I made him sit inside the patio doors while I warmed myself in the sun. I locked the cat in the cellar, hid the remote, avoided the downstairs loo. I could not believe my ears. How he'd heard the tale. Look, we know Midas with gold, but who wished instead for ice? Him. Do you know about ice? It chills us all. Heavy, hard, the climate turned harsh, slips and slides. He tried to eat some food once more. I gazed entranced at the meal solidified at once. At least, I said, you'll lose some weight now. He touched crystallised food. Separate beds. In fact, I bolted shut my door. Every night. He was below, turning the spare room into the home of the Inuit. You see, we used to love like fire in those early days, engulfing each other with passion like fireworks, sparks. But now I feared his sub-zero grasp, the kiss that would freeze my breath as it touched my lips. And who, when considering love, can live with a heart of ice? That night, I dreamt I bore his child, its shining glass eyes, its little mouth a deep glacier, its kicking limbs like icicles in caves, my cold womb frozen in time. 
I woke to the warming sun. So I had to move out. We had a guest house in the woods, one that we rented out. I drove from there in the middle of the night. He sat in the back. And then I returned, the woman who married the fool who wished for ice. At first, I would stop by, odd times, parking the car along the roads, then walking. You knew you were getting close, frozen pairs like light bulbs. One day, a solitary tree, glistening as if a sculpture. And then his footprints, surrounded by shimmering puddles. He was thin, wishing for food. Fire's flame, he said, not thawing enough or at all. Starving. I knew I'd lost him. What gets me now is not the deep longing for power, but lack of thought for me. Pure selfishness. I lugged the ice statues to the garden to melt. I think of him when winter comes, snow coating the ground, and I can no more drink lemonade. I miss most, even now, his hands, his warm hands on my skin, his touch. That's so good. <laughs> I love all your wee internal rhymes. Thank you, I tried. <laughs> I really liked what there was a line near the start about like the waterfalls turned to glass or something. Yeah. He drew the blinds, I thought of waterfalls turned to glass and of glaciers indoors. Yeah. I enjoyed that. Thank you. That's an example of something we get at Create Writing. You have to write a parody of something. I can't remember what I did for that now. I don't even remember the class. I honestly no. couldn't have told you we did that unless I'd read that essay. But yeah, like I said, I think I would approach it a bit differently now. I don't think I would use as many of her own words or her own images. But I thought it was still all right. It's an okay good. effort. It's pretty good. Don't remember what I got graded, but <laughs> <laughs> we'll just pretend it was good. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. Oh, thank you. Do you have a quickfire favourite this week? I do. I have another song as my quickfire favourite this week. So we've mentioned my Five Seconds of Summer addiction before. Yep. But I realised that apart from passing, I haven't actually recommended any of their songs. Well, so, that has to be right to find, Exactly. So this is the one I'm obsessed with at the moment, which I've definitely played around you before. And it's easier, but it's their Live from the Vault version. Okay. Which essentially means it was recorded live and it's how they'll play it when they eventually get to go on tour. Nice. So yeah, I love the original version of this song anyway, but this has so much more like drums, bass and rhythm guitar and it's way more rock inspired whereas the one in the album is more like pop electronic kind of but yeah the instrumentals totally make this one for me and i'm so in love with luke's voice which is just wonderfully sexy is what i've written (laughs) and um, i don't share this but i know you don't i'm glad that you do oh this is so stupid i probably shouldn't air this but i i've just written speaking of that the music video for the original is just dot 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 <laughs> and then I've written <laughs> probably shouldn't air my sexual fantasies in a podcast that my family listen to but yeah <laughs> do you remember the video is it the one in the cave yeah yeah <laughs> where he's chained up yeah anyway cool. I'll just leave that for the listeners to find for themselves because I'm not gonna like I... implicate myself any further didn't, so didn't think that uh, chained up Australian would be your thing, but there you go. Um. Anyway, that was my highlight. It's a really good song. What is? 
What's your quick fire favorite? Can I? We don't have. You can edit this out if you want, but like, I was listening to a high low the other day where they were talking about how women are obsessed with like feminine men because they're like oh. a safe, a safe yes. sexual fantasy. But yeah. it makes you have like disproportionate amounts of lust. Which, like, oh, I'm not gonna lie, it made me think of you. Oh well. Um, yep. Right. <laughs> So, my quickfire favourite this week is a podcast for my pretentious side. Oh. It is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, it's hosted by the New Yorker Fiction editor, Deborah Treesman, and the format is simply a famous author comes on, they read a short story written by someone else from the archives of the New Yorker, and then them and Deborah Treesman have a short discussion of the story. Mm-hmm. And it's really low-key, it's really, like sedate energy mm-hmm. but for someone who's recently left uni it is kind of filling the hole in my life where tutorials used to be and it's also a really great entryway for people that are looking to familiarize themselves more with the short story form but they don't want to like fork out for collections in <laughs> case they don't like them yeah and to give you an idea of the kind of stories it's like those weird and haunting short stories that you were made to read in standard grade English. Okay. That you just have never forgot. It's yeah. all that. It's good stuff. And yeah, I'd really recommend the episode, it's quite a recent one, of Tommy Orange reading Louise Erdrich's The Years of My Life as a place to start. I love that episode. And yeah, it's just a really good podcast. Cool. We know I love a podcast. I'll have yeah. to look that one up. It's good fun. Do you have a rant for us this week? I don't know if I'd call it a rant, to be honest. I'm not really raging this week. But I do have a fun fact in place of my rage um, that I thought I would share with the group. Okay. So my fun fact this week is the etymology of the word freelance. Oh. So obviously I work in... Wait, I think I know this. Is it... Oh, I don't want to spoil it. You just say it. Okay. I'll tell you, but it was what I thought. (laughs) So I work in journalism and we use freelancers all the time, but I've never really thought about the word in itself. So freelance comes from the times of like knights and round tables. That was right, yeah. And a freelance was a knight that swore loyalty to no king. So he was literally a freelance to be used by whoever paid him. So essentially, freelancers were the original mercenaries Take from that what you will about journalism as a profession. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I remember learning that fact. My mind was blown. I can't, yeah, I can't believe I've never thought about it. And I actually, like, messaged loads of my pals at work and was like, did anyone know this? Am I just dumb? And everyone's mind was blown. Yeah. So I feel good that I wasn't just dumb. It's so funny. There's so many words like that where it's very clearly in the word. Yeah. Like, if you just thought about what freelance, what that meant, you would probably work it out for yourself, but we just don't. Yeah. We just (laughs) accept it. (laughs) That's cool. Do you have an insight for us this week? I do. So... Seeing as this section has just turned into me sharing like random facts as well, mm. I thought I'd journey back to greekmythology.com today. Woohoo! And I was looking through a section they've got called Elements, which is basically just like important objects and myths. All right. And I found one about the Shield of Achilles, uh-huh. which I thought was really interesting because even though I've now read multiple texts about him, I never actually knew this. So this is the what, more it, you know. what it says. 
The Shield of Achilles is the shield that the Greek hero used during his duel against Hector, Prince of Troy, towards the end of the Trojan War. Achilles had given his armour to his friend Patroclus, who died in the battle and the armour was taken by the Trojans. Achilles' mother, the goddess Thetis, asked Hephaestus to forge a new armour to provide her son. The shield was described in detail by Homer in his epic Iliad, and it was said to depict a number of things in concentric circles. From the centre of the shield to the outer area, the scenes depicted in each circle were the earth, the sky, the sun, the moon and the star formations, two cities, one in which a wedding took place, another which was besieged by an army, a thrice ploughed field, a king's field during harvest season, a vineyard, a herd of cattle, a sheep farm, people dancing, the stream of Oceanus. Thus, the shield depicted the entire world and life in general. Huh. It's cool, isn't it? That is cool. (laughs) I did not know that. That makes me want to, like, write something in which I can say a life like Achilles' shield. Yeah. Or something. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It makes me want to use that as, like, a a cool simile. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, that was a fun fact that I learned. Nice. That is cool. Yeah, it's weird that we like that his armor is such a big deal, especially in Song of Achilles. And, and we you're don't not really actually know. told what it looks yeah. like. Yeah, I know. Didn't even question it. <laughs> so it was my turn to get us a question this week, mm-hmm. and I actually haven't thought about my answer because I saw it and I thought this was a really hard question, so I thought I'd make it an even playing field. Okay. What would you title the movie of the other person's life? Oh, God. (laughs) Yup. (laughs) So, I think we should just openly make this a roast. Okay. Because I think that (laughs) otherwise it's going to be too serious. Oh, no. What do I call yours? I know. Do you know what the first word that's come to my mind is? (laughs) Roadkill. Is it me that's the roadkill? Am I creating the roadkill? Exactly. Do I lose chaos in my wake? You have to watch it to find out. (laughs) This is hard. I know. The first word that came to my mind was just like, a bean. (laughs) It's like the story of a bean. But it's not very original, so I'm trying to think of something better. Maybe we should give this some more serious thought and then post the answer on our Instagram. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we could too. Yeah, those are our preliminary answers. Roadkill and the story of a bean. <laughs> if you have any suggestions oh, for yeah. what we could title our lives, please do send them in. <laughs> okay, that is us today. And we do have an little, announcement. Yeah, a little announcement. So, we're going to go back to two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> because we are beholden to no one. But also, we want to give some more like specialised content for you guys. We really loved our little myth and folklore series and people seem to respond well to that. Mm-hmm. So, we want to give more themed episodes, more in-depth content. And for that, we need some time. Yeah, so back to posting every two weeks... But we do have plans for our social media to like kind of 
bridge the gap so we will definitely have content up on there so engage with it don't yes, leave us hanging exactly and it means that if we ever come up with any sort of like bonus episode ideas we can just kind of post them on that week off yeah so yeah we're gonna do that sure you're all devastated but <laughs> But I just, not that I'm trying to like justify it because we can do what we want, but... (laughs) This is our podcast. Yeah, but like our Word documents are normally like 3,000 words above per episode. We write out like our little script of what we're going to say and we are writing one of those each week. So it's a lot of work that we put in before even recording and editing and all the post stuff. Exactly. And as much as I love writing my scripts, I haven't written anything else for about three weeks because, you know, we have jobs and lives. So in order for us to be able to give you that sweet, sweet writing content, (laughs) gonna have to have some time to write shit. Yeah, it's it's quality over quantity (laughs) is what we're going for. (laughs) But um, yeah, so we will be back in two weeks. Yes. And until then stay tuned to hear about our movie title (laughs) yeah exactly if you have any questions or comments for us if you have any suggestions on what you want our episodes to be because we are happy to hear that Mm. please email us at infatuatedpodcast at outlook.com as i said we've got social media it will be linked below please follow us because we will have lots of things on there yep and the infatuated mix is also linked down there it is all the music that we mention Thanks for listening and we'll see you in two weeks time. Bye. Bye.